What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Born to Rain. I'm not flying solo this week. I've got Jeremiah back with me. <laughs> uh, sorry to those of you who listen on YouTube. We don't have the. Uh, we went off the reservation a little bit this week. We're not in the Aurora Podcasting Studios. Um, to Jay and Wheels, if you're listening, we miss you. Have some fun back in the Aurora Podcasting Studios again. Uh, I'll bring beer. There we go. <laughs> well, on that on that note, um, we're talking today about a little bit of a touchy subject within the Christian realm. Um, it's a word that often gets um, blacklisted as like this uh, not a word that we're not supposed to use anymore. Um, we're just calling this episode the R word um, for religion. Uh, you said it. I, I said it. We, we might have to bleep that out later. Uh, yeah. But there's a phrase, Jeremiah, in Christianity today that says Christianity isn't a religion. Mm-hmm. It's a relationship. Um, and I think that's kind of like our fundamental starting point here for this episode. Yeah. Is Christianity actually just a relationship or is it an actual religion? Right. Well, here's a here's a good sample. I just so I just googled, you know, I just pulled up Google, googled religion. Oh wait, googled Christianity is relationship, not a religion. And it's one of the first articles I saw. I'm gonna read it to you because it's it's pretty illustrative. It's pretty good. Our elderly neighbor Helen squinted up at my wife and me. She said, "I'm religious, just like you." She said that shoving white hair to the side of her head with knobby fingers. She rested her broom against the wood-paneled hallway of our old apartment building. (laughs) They, like, painted her like a witch. (laughs) The knobby fingers, white hair, the broom. Actually, Helen, I answered, tucking my mail under my arm, I think of Christianity more like having a relationship with God, not being religious. So that's the... um, really the the issue the key issue and i think maybe in that article they're trying to paint as a generational thing but is christianity is christianity a religion or a relationship well i i call false dichotomy first of all you don't need to separate the two the answer is yes (laughs) it's not a it's not an either or yeah Uh, because if you just look at the the basic definition of religion in the dictionary, right. you just open up a dictionary. Um, it says that a specific, that a religion is a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons or sects. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's where we would have this view of religion is we're all agreeing on something. You can't just say it's a personal relationship um, because pick a person, right? You and I are sitting here. Mm-hmm. Pick a person that we know. Um, your relationship with that person is different than mine. Right. And so if if you just make that a relationship, it's always going to be a thoroughly relativistic set of beliefs, set of um, a system um, that has no system to it. Right. If you just remove any sort of boundaries from it, you're just going to run wild mm-hmm. and everybody's mm-hmm. going to kind of do their own thing, which we see several times in scripture. Look at the way um, 
the book of Judges ends, that everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Yep. And what did God call that? Extreme wickedness. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a, oh, I'll serve, I'll serve God in, in my own way. You can, you can mind your own business. Um, that's, mm-hmm. that's an idea that's completely foreign from Scripture. Right. Whenever somebody says, uh, I'm not religious, I just have a relationship, the first thing I want to ask them is, because it's normally true, predominantly true, do you go to a church? Yeah. Okay, does your church have a statement of faith? Maybe I can look up on their website. Yeah. What do we believe? Boom. Do you agree with this statement? Yes. Do the other people in your church agree with this statement? Yes. So you mean you are in unity with a group of people who have an agreed upon set of beliefs and you act in accordance with them? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of similar to postmodernism. There is no truth. Well, is that the truth? There is no... Re- I believe in relationship, not religion. Is that an agreed upon statement that you share with other people? The fact is that modern Christianity actually agrees that that is that that's what we're that's what we're supposed to believe right. is that it's just a, a private religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's uh, a a good thing to mention. You mentioned even before we started recording was how much of that mentality has actually taken Christianity out of the public square, and so it's yeah. no surprise to see a deterioration of culture happening mm-hmm. right in front of our eyes as Christians become more and more, oh, keep it to yourself. Yeah, right. And f- emphasis, like you said a minute ago, on modern Christianity. This is the belief that dominates modern Christianity. If you crack open Matthew Henry or, or any of the old heads from the 16th century, 17th century, or 18th century, even the 19th century, I believe, uh, you hear religion this, religion that, right? And the reason behind that, I believe, is the push to destroy Christian culture and the push to get Christianity out of the public square. So I can't, I can't remember where I heard this. I think it was R.C. Sproul, Systematic Theology, if I remember right. But he talks about religion being the way that people act under authority. So there is a ceremonial aspect to it. It does have to do with the way you act. Well, if a bunch of people are acting in a certain way, and even in the public square, we have rulings from courts saying that this is undoubtedly a Christian nation. We have uh, tons of stuff like that. Well, how do you push that out? You need to demonize religion. So the best way to get Christians to abandon the way they act in the public square is to get them to essentially abandon their religion. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, I explained it better before we started, but you could probably <laughs> clarify. <laughs> yeah, because when, when you take it out of, out of the public, and this is if we're going to refer people back to one of our Born to Read episodes, um, C.R. Wiley in the, the Household and the War for the Cosmos um, s- s- talks about that personal piety um, being something that has to be worked out in real life, mm-hmm. and um, he even he he references there that religion, saying that Christianity is not a religion; it's a relationship. Actually, like you said, it's a it makes a false dichotomy because yes, it includes the relationship, but it's more than that because Christianity as a whole is a complete worldview. Right. It encompasses everything. That's why. 
we as Christians can sit here and do an episode on abortion because Christianity has relevance to whether or not we kill babies. Right. Christianity has um, implications for uh, how we do our jobs, you know, from nine to five. How, how do we do that? Uh, because our religion is worked out. We don't want to preach a works-based salvation, and I think that's where mm-hmm. we really get into that, um, why people want to discourage religion, because yeah. they say that you have to you have to earn your way to heaven, right? That's right. kind of the, the, the nasty um, monster that stands behind the word mm-hmm. religion, um, because doing good works um, isn't going to get you to heaven. So we just have to say, oh, it, we're going to dismiss that. We're going to push that to the corner uh, and keep it out of the public square. And the other common cliche in Christianity today is um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Um, Don't you have that tattooed like on your arm? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I scratched it out and I used, uh, I prefer to use the phrase, uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, shut up. <laughs> because that's that's what our our religion is yeah. is that it needs to be front and center right all the time everywhere we go whether we're at the grocery store um whether we're at work whether we're at home reading a book um christianity touches everything in our life mm-hmm. um and, and so we can't just dismiss all of that out of hand and say oh well you do it your you, you do it on your own um, cause it, it's going to affect it. Right. Ideas have consequences. Practices have consequences. And I think there's a, an aspect of the whole, well, I don't have to earn my way to heaven. Well, yes, you don't, you don't have to earn your way to heaven. And I've often heard it said from the pulpit, the thing that differentiates Christianity from religion is we don't have to earn our way there. So I think that it's kind of a shell game where they're they're using truths, but they're but they're kind of betraying the dictionary and their and their uh, mission. What is there is kind of true, but also there's also a latent form of antinomianism, which which is even more dangerous, or just as dangerous as the other side. Antinomianism, for those of you who don't know, means anti-law, means against the law, and so when let's say you have a friend and he's in sin and you say, Hey dude, you know, you shouldn't be sleeping with your girlfriend or you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. Well, why? I'm not religious. You sound religious. You sound holier than thou. You sound, uh, all this. It's really antinomianism. It's just a way to get away, get away and get around from the law of God. And it's bad. So I think a lot of times this Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, is used as a club to beat people who are faithful over the head. And nowhere in the Bible does it say you're free from the Ten Commandments. Nowhere in the Bible. It's a rule of life for all people, saved and unsaved. And that's just the way it is. You're not free from the moral law of God. You, you have to act morally. Right. And, and when you say the, there's a club to beat you with, I think the, the name of that club is often legalism. Oh, yeah. Right, that's, that's your... Oh, that's a good thing to touch on right now, isn't it? That's, that's the favorite. If somebody is considering, does, says, no, it's not, a reli- it's not a relationship. It's not just a relationship. It is a religion. Um, and there are 
works prescribed for us to do. Even James, yeah. um, which I was actually reading last night in my Bible reading plan, um, James references and says, pure and undefiled religion is this. What is it? To actually do something in the culture, to go uh, look after orphans and widows in their distress. It's actual actions um, done in a certain way. Um, out of a pure heart, <laughs> you know, right. uh, James has already talked about beforehand, um, don't honor, don't just honor the rich man when he comes into your assembly just because um, he's a rich dude and then ignore the poor man. He's like, here, look, there's all these things that we have to pay attention to. You need to, to do all these things. Um, and the New Testament, despite being uh, what's often viewed as the um, the... the testament of grace and and being freed from the law gives a lot of positive commands do this Mm -hmm. uh do it this way you you need to do it it's maybe not as detailed as like leviticus would have been that's a you know make sure that this um fabric is made out of this material and is this thick and is um this this many feet by this many feet um that doesn't necessarily have to uh, that's that's not the same there but when we say there is religion, there is a works um, that has to that has to happen, um, fruit that has to be manifested in the life of the believer, that club that gets beat over our heads is legalism. Oh, you're just being legalistic, right? Um, and that's where we have to be really careful to not just brandish that club because legalism is a real problem. Jesus just rips a new one to the Pharisees all this time. <laughs> it's like, you've added commands yeah. to the law of God um, that aren't justified. Mm-hmm. But Jesus in no way says, oh, but you can also disregard God's law. That We're not throwing yeah. off all of the law. Right. Um, there is still offense that you have to stay within right. the pasture on. And a lot of people will, will say like, well, we're not under the law. Good and well, Paul Paul does say that. But in what way were we under the law? In what way? It, it was in a, uh, Paul says the law was a tutor to the Jews. It's, it's as if the Jews were ch- infants. He said, leave behind infantile religion. It's as if they were infants and we are grownups. They needed all those ceremonies, all those things to help them see what? What were they trying to see? Well, it says in Hebrews that, the entire Mosaic law was fashioned after what Moses saw on the mount, and what Moses saw on the mount was Christ. Yeah. So we're not under the law in a tutelage sort of way, because in the New Covenant, we are bigger, stronger, we have more revelation. It's, it's awesome. We're not free from the law, we're free for the law. And I always like to break this verse out, because a lot of the times... Actually, one time, all I did was post this verse on Facebook, and tons of people got mad in my comments. All I did was post a scripture, and it's pretty funny. So Paul says this in Romans 3.31. He says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, by faith, we establish the law. I mean, there it is right there. I rest my case. I mean, that's all it should take, right? So... When somebody says legalism, you're legalistic because you don't, I don't know, allow pictures of Jesus in your household. Well, that's the second commandment. And every house should be a place of worship. I don't think that you should have 
pictures of Jesus that aren't really Jesus in your place of worship. Uh, I don't know. You're you're legalistic because you don't want to uh, eat out with me on Sunday. Well, that's keep the Sabbath holy. That's so all of those legalistic claims just kind of fall to the fore when you realize that the moral law of God was not ever, we're never freed from the moral law of God ever. And all of those instances occur outside of the Ten Commandments, prior to the Ten Commandments, because, and, and we've discussed this, I don't think we've do- talked about this on the on the show yet, um, but the the idea that the Ten Commandments are rooted in creation order. Um, right. So they're they're eternal. That that was part of what was given to Moses on Sinai. Um, but look at the Sabbath. Uh, God rested on on the seventh day. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he he made man in his own image, um, and so we have this like he, he's cautious not to. He doesn't he doesn't just plaster his image everywhere. He's very specific. And then when Christ comes to redeem mankind. He comes as a as a man mm-hmm. bearing the image, and so we're saying, look, th- that that idea of no no graven image, don't worship anything else. You are the temple of God. You are the one who is supposed to follow and pursue after uh, after the the worship of God. Um, it's not the trees. It's not the the animals. It's not anything else. Um, you worship God because you were made in His likeness, um, and then we have our perfect savior that comes that in, in the flesh, uh, for us. And so we have all those go, go on and on and on. Um, God disciplines Cain for murdering his, uh, brother. Right. Thou shalt not murder. It goes into the 10 commandments. These like, these are, he, he gives, he gives a just penalty for those things. Um, prior to that law being given. And so we see those, there's a moral law, restricts us to right. living an upright and holy life before God. Right. Um, and that moral law abides or abides, applies to anybody made in the image of God because the moral law is grounded in the character of God. And since God can never change, the moral law will never change. What did, what did the Bible say about Abraham? He kept God's commandments. What commandments? There weren't, there weren't tablets of stone no. yet. Like they, had, right. they hadn't been given that yet. Um, but he believed God. He he walked in faith before before God and followed the commandments that he was given. Right. Um, not perfectly, obviously. None yeah. none of us are. Um, and so to to continue on that that same legalist bent, and as we've already mentioned the Sabbath a couple of times, but mm-hmm. that that's probably a that's a big enough topic for, for a different episode. Another episode, yeah. Um, and you can break down the tabernacles and stuff in that one. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk Sunday Fun Day uh, mm-hmm. on another uh, episode. But when we're looking at um, legalism and religion, um, you have to ask. Gosh, I just lost all of my train of thought. Oh, you did? Can <laughs> I? Can I say something? Then? Jump in. Um, well, I wanted to bring it around to liturgical worship because a lot of the times when I get into this, people, if, if they find out I'm a Christian, they'll say like, oh, oh well, what, what, what denomination or what kind of Christian are you? And I'll say, oh, I'm Presbyterian. And uh, a lot of the times it's, oh, really? So you have to do a lot of sitting up and standing up and sitting down and you have to do a lot of, uh, 
it's really orderly and it's really religious and more than a few times people are like well you know i left that i left that practice because it was religious and you know i'm free now and i'm uh i don't know i just have a relationship and it's all love and uh i'm being a little bit facetious but all those things have been said and it's like is this as if to imply that i don't have love <laughs> right right so there's that and then the second thing is the character of God, going back to what Hebrews says about um, about the about the Mosaic law, God tells Moses, craft these things after what you saw on the mount. And then Hebrews says what he saw was Christ. So Christ, if you think the Mosaic law, if you think if you think the Mosaic covenant was orderly and religious and bad, what are you saying? That the character of Christ is bad, religious, legalistic. Well, what do we see in the in the New Testament? That doesn't go away. If anything, it's amplified. Paul says to the Galatians, I believe, uh, I was impressed by your order of worship. The word order there is a military term, regimented. What do you think about when you think about military? They're marching in step. They're unloading their rifles in the exact same manner. They're orderly. They're ready for battle. And it's impressive. And then to add on to that, I think God's inscribed into us, into our very images, the um, love for doing things with other people and worship being a covenantal corporate practice. When you're singing a psalm at the top of your lungs with a bunch of other people and you're reading a, a scripture, the Apostles' Creed, with a bunch of other people with one voice, it does something to you. It's, it's awesome. And I think that a lot of people are going to say, oh, that's religious, that's that. Well, call it what you want, but don't call it unchristlike, because that's exactly what it is. Right. Because did Jesus, did Jesus keep the Sabbath when he was on earth? Right, yeah. Did Jesus um, follow the law? Well, there were prescribed things for the, for the Jews to do. He kept the feasts. He kept those, um, those pilgrimage feasts. We see him... Um, at least twice goes up to Jerusalem to observe um, Passover, which yep. was a pilgrimage feast. Uh, you have all of these these discussions. Um, I even think it's funny that how many times is he criticized for um, working or doing stuff on the Sabbath? Um, he's criticized for that. But what is he? Where is he when he's criticized for doing doing work on the Sabbath? Most often, he's actually in the synagogue as a part of the as a part of the worship service, mm -hmm. right? And he, so he's he's actually there. He's singing his psalms. He, he's singing his psalms. He's reading scripture. The very beginning of his ministry is him coming out of the wilderness after being tempted by um, Satan. Comes into a, a a a synagogue and sits down, reads reads the scriptures before the people. Um, and so he's right there. He's part of uh, public worship. And this is part of what we, we talked about um, when we had uh, Ben on uh, a few weeks ago to talk oh, about yeah. his book. The Yeah, actually, I was going to say that Hebrews thing, I'm kind of drawing on Ben Zorn's book, The Gospel of the Pentateuch. Pastor Ben Zorn's Moscow, Idaho from Christ Church. He wrote a book. It's called The Gospel of the Pentateuch. It's really cheap. It's only five bucks, but it's worth it. It's terrific. Terrific. Yeah. When we talk, when when we had him on, um, we were we were discussing um, that that public worship 
and how Leviticus, uh, was it Leviticus? Is, uh, means, and he called. Yeah. I'm not a Hebrew expert, so I'm just trusting his uh, bona fides there. <laughs> um, but the, it means, and he called, and, and the, the response was, and the Lord called, and the people answered. And there was there was a prescription of here's how you worship God, right? Um, and so there's there's specific sets of of worship. Um, John Calvin, I thought was interesting. I read uh, a quote from him the other day that was he basically viewed the Protestant Reformation reclaiming uh, two things, uh, two big pillars of the Protestant mm-hmm. Reformation okay. were uh, justification by faith and the regulative principle of worship. Mm. That we're we're not adding traditions into the into the worship of God, but that we only do what's prescribed. Hmm. Many today, I think, would would hear a statement like that when we talk about regulative versus normative principles of worship. Many people today will say, "Well, the regulative principle is legalistic." Right. Think about the Psalms that say, um, "Sing unto the Lord a new song." Well, yeah, you can sing a new song, but don't forget to sing the old ones too. Right. Um, and I think we, we have a lot of people today that will sing, only want to sing Hillsong and Bethel. Yeah. We'll occasionally throw a hymn in there, right? Redone. But won't sing, won't go all the way back and actually sing the Psalms. Or right. if they do, it's a very modernized uh, with a Chris Tomlin chorus <laughs> added, in, added into it. Yeah. Um, well, the thing with regulative, too, is that, and I wanted to bring this back around to something else I wanted to say, is there is some people, <clears throat> covenanters, that uh, go too far. Those Cal- darn Scots. <laughs> <laughs> Calvin read the Apostles' Creed. Calvin uh, was not, I think, I, think um, I believe he, they had communion on Easter, uh, Christmas, he followed the church calendar. He wasn't. He wasn't as strict a relativist, a, a regulative principalist. He wasn't a relativist at all. <laughs> he wasn't as strict a regulative uh, principle adherent as the Covenanters. And there's some people uh, who will say, you know, I went to a church like that, and they did this, they acted like this, I did that, they treated me like that, and to them, I say, I'm sorry that happened to you, because there are some instances where. Uh, people can go too far. Like, I can't think of a specific example right now, but there are people who are hypocritical. They're not understanding. Uh, I mean, I used to wear earrings, right? Uh, I was, I mean, I was going to a school in Aurora, North Aurora, and everybody had earrings, uh, boys and girls alike. And if somebody would have, let's say I walked into a hardcore Covenanter church, now, somebody could have made a passive-aggressive remark and been like, eh, you know, uh, I don't know why I'm talking in that accent. but <laughs> <laughs> You so, know the Covenanters are Scottish, right? Not yeah, like, I don't, <laughs> what was that, like Italian? There's I don't know. That, hey, was like, you know. that was like an Italian-Mexican. <laughs> yeah, but if, some, if one of them was like making passive-aggressive comments like, oh, little girl and over here. If somebody, somebody could have instead said something like, hey, you know, you're participating in the feminization of men in our culture. And I probably would have been like, oh, and took him out and throw him in the trash. So there's a lot of times where people are over the top, uh, not understanding, not loving, not willing to sit people down. I mean, when I take, I had a friend who came with me to 
uh, a liturgical worship service and I said, hey, look, this is not what you're used to. This is going to be weird for you. However, everything we do has a reason, a biblical reason. It's grounded in scripture and I can explain it to you. And that was a better way than being like, you don't know this. I mean, how could you? You're just, you know, you're just a young, stupid idiot. So there are people who, you know, go too far and treat others with with disrespect. And even to circle back the way even even churches who will say that we're not legalistic and stuff, they still have a worship service every time, every week at the same time. Probably same, do the same thing. Same place, same time. Um, even in a more contemporary church that's not, not rooted in super strict liturgy, um, and they'll you know they'll sing three songs maybe maybe have an offering or just reference the boxes in the back or or whatever like they do announcements and then the sermon and then a, a closing song maybe an altar call or something like that but whether and if you grew, and if you grew up in classic Calvary Chapel like I did you do responsive readings which is pretty liturgical yeah yeah and I I remember <laughs> I remember doing those as well um, and you might rearrange the order and stuff, but all of the elements stay there. It's all the same thing, maybe once a month communion or, or that type of thing. All of those things are are there because at at the very basis, and I think this will transition us to kind of the maybe one of our, our last um, points here, is um, at the very basis, we know that there are certain commands for the public worship. We know that we're supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper, right. and so all—that's an element. All Orthodox Christians, um, whether they're on the charismatic side or whether they're on the more Reformed um, liturgical side, will recognize we do need to do this. Now we'll have some squabbles as to um, what that's supposed to look like, how often you're supposed to do it. Is it okay to use wine for it, or is uh, <laughs> grape juice okay? Or um, as uh, Eric Mason said recently on his uh, sermon, um, he's like, if you need to grab some orange juice, just grab some orange juice. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> um, what, whatever you got on hand. Okay. Um, so you, you, we may have some of these squabbles here, but at the basic level, we all recognize Jesus gave us his command. He says, as often as you drink this cup and as often as you eat this bread, uh, you do it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, um, we do it until he returns. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we know the basic Christian faith says, look, that that's a law. Why do you follow that? If there if we're not under law, why do you always have communion on the the fourth Sunday of the month? You know, why why is that a or hopefully a, every week? A regul a regulative thing. Yeah. I like having communion every week. It's I think it's great. Well, so did Calvin. Yeah. Um but it's um, didn't Edwards try and institute weekly communion too? Did he? I wouldn't be surprised. I don't remember. I think it got him the, fired. The Scots, the Scots got weird with it. <laughs> Calvin said at least once a week, and then the Scots were like, "And eh, twice a year because our people are retarded." <laughs> <laughs> but at the very at the very least, we know that there are those laws, and so I would hope that even in just this conversation, we're recognizing. Um, that it's okay to say that Christianity is a religion, right? Yeah, because 
James says, if you want to be truly, truly religious, he uses that as a motivation. And then somebody else comes to you and says, don't be religious, just have a relationship. Yeah. Well, somebody's wrong, and it's not James. Yeah. Because James, and I guess this would also rewind it into, okay, when James says pure and undefiled religion is this, that's saying, okay, well, if as long as we're just doing good things, taking care of the orphans and widows, we don't have to worry about what our church services look like. Mm. But that's not what not uh, James talks about, because he also references structured worship mm-hmm. earlier in the book when he talks about the um, the uh, the rich man and the poor man coming into your synagogue. Mm. That's a specific place at a specific time yeah. for a specific purpose. Um, and we know what they did. And we yeah, we know exactly what they were what they were doing at, at that time. Um and so I think as as we would kind of circle this around, bring bring it in for a landing, I think the, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about um creeds and confessions. Oh yeah. Um oh yeah because when because when we look at something like uh when we look at the definition that says a specific uh, religion is a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons or sects, right. we have these creeds and confessions, some very, very early in the church. Look at the Apostles' Creed that yeah. comes from, what, 2nd, 3rd century? I think it's earlier than that. That's like really, really early. It wasn't from the Apostles' despite the name, it w- but it was very, it, within the first couple of centuries of the church, we're saying, okay, we're going to sit down and we're going to have this. Mm-hmm. And my church uh, recites this creed weekly. Right. We say, you know, the, the call from the pulpit is, Christian, what do you believe? And the congregation responds by reciting the Apostles' Creed, I believe, I believe in God, in God, God the, the Father, Father Almighty. Almighty. And so, and and right on down the list, what, is, what do we have? The um uh, Jesus uh incarnate nature we have um the holy ghost we have uh um the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins Death the resurrection of the body um we have all these things right down we probably should have just quoted the whole thing but probably. um <laughs> but that's like that's that's kind of our springboard in terms of christian history um and i think the didache was earlier than that and the didache instructs Christians to say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that, bre- I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's ceremonial, yeah. for sure. But that was prescribed to early Christians. And uh, going back to the creeds and confessions thing, I was, again, kind of kind of similar. There's parallel roads here to postmodernism. A lot of people say, like, well, you know, no creed but Christ. Well, that is, in fact, a creed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I... I can understand because when I when I first was like a new Calvinist, you know, uh, I thought you know the confession, the confessionalism, the Westminster Confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, Helvetic, Belgic, Augsburg. Um, I thought it was weird because I was like, well, I only need Scripture, right? Um, it's, I, I guess you could say I did I did think it was overly religious or legalistic or whatever, but. It's funny because at the time, no matter what church I was going to, every single one had a statement of faith and outlined what they believed, and everybody agreed with it. And well, it kind of might call it a confession. And it was a confession, <laughs> yeah. whether or not you want to call it that. 
a tomato tomato that's what it was yeah. so i was holding to one while saying i didn't hold to one and and the the problem therein that that i would see in when every church just says oh we're going to write a our our statement of faith yep you kind of divorce yourself from everybody else and you might look at a um a typical non-denominational church um and there might be a family of churches, and if you go from one church to the other to the other, um, there might be a lot of consistencies with their statements of faith. There might be very, very similar. One, because it is all the same faith. They're, right. they're still believing the same things. They might worded it a little bit differently. Um, but at the very least, we're saying, look, you can count on going to any, virtually any uh, within the bounds of uh conservative Christianity. You can go to any of those churches and go expect to find, you know, 10 or 15 things. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about scripture? What do we believe about baptism? What do we believe about, you know, X, Y, Z on down the list? Um, you can expect to find those things across the board and they're all going to be relatively similar. Um, but then to turn around and look at something like the Westminster Confession and say, oh, well, that's being overly legalistic because it's 600 pages long or, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's uh, not, though, for those of you who haven't read it. It's yeah, not. It, it's very short. Depends on if you get the one with all the scripture proofs. The one that I have on my oh, desk yeah, at home yeah. has all of the scripture proofs, and so you've got, like, it's like one inch of the confession up on the top, and then, like, and the rest uh, just the uh, two-thirds of the page is <laughs> uh, scripture references. But what does that help? What is the role, then, of that... Um, of that confession then within the church, but to set up boundaries and set up an objective standard for us to say, okay, you've, you've wandered off the path. You're off the reservation. Um, it doesn't matter if somebody comes back and, and comes back with um, a scripture verse that says, oh, look, I have, I have a scripture. I have a scripture to justify what I'm doing. Right. Um, they say, yeah, but did you take into account the... Um, the whole of scripture, the context of that verse that you just definitely took out of context. Um, and that's where the, the creeds and confessions help, help us set a, set a framework for, okay, here's your, here's your wall. You can bounce back and forth between, between all this, but, but this, this helps set so that we all agree upon these basic principles. Right. And that is a very, uh, profitable utility of the creeds and confessions when uh, when people will say like well you know using that confession of that creed is actually legalistic i'll say not using them is actually arrogant because you're refusing to adhere or to hear out the saints who've been here for two thousand years you're denying the power of the holy spirit when did, when did Christ send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? That was 2,000 years ago. So the Holy Spirit's been here. It's been dwelling in the temple of God, the Holy Church, for 2,000 years. And he hasn't done any work until you. Well, that's not true. Actually, Christians have been here for a long time. The Holy Spirit has been moving for a long time. Started with 12 people. Right now we're at about, what, 3 billion who claim to be Christians at least. And they wrote stuff down. We have all kinds. We have the Nicene, the Nicene Creed, the uh, Chalcedon, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we have tons, tons of stuff. 
And for somebody to say, to raise their head above all of them and say, they're all wrong. I don't need any of their help. Well, then why are you going to church? I mean, there's not really, if you're that good, if you're that cool, why don't you just stay home, you know? Now, I have encountered people like that, that will say, I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need to go to church to hear another person teach me how to follow God. Yeah, and that and that's just a a breakdown of the belief of the church. What is the church is a body, it's an organism. An organism works together. Your your heart doesn't beat without your lungs. Like you need everything. So I think that would be a at the bottom, at the foundation of that would be a rejection of the corporate body of Christ and really a misunderstanding of the church and what it's supposed to do thinking that you, that's individualistic, thinking you are the church. Everybody else is their own individual church. I don't know how that, how you could really justify that. Yeah. And then when Hebrews 13 talks about um, not forsaking the gathering together, when it talks about, you know, you have 1 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus telling us that we need to ordain elders to, to rule over the church, to regulate the, the, the worship, 1 Corinthians 14 says that uh, all worship should be done decent and in order. Um, that there, There's still that prescribed way to, to follow how God has given us this, this worship. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to do things, and there are specific ways. And if you go off the reservation, it's not you practicing Christianity by yourself. By forsaking the gathering of the brethren, by forsaking submission to faithful elders— you're actually not living as a Christian. And I'm not saying that somebody who does that is not a Christian, but you run dangerously close Mm -hmm. of you're excommunicating yourself from a faithful body of believers by not, by by thinking that you're free to do whatever you want. Right. And that doesn't mean essentially that all confessions are all correct. Right. Right. Because we're, We'll differ on different things. I was just looking at the uh, uh, comparing comparing two confessions, the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession, um, and I was I was looking specifically at the chapters on baptism oh, okay. uh, this morning, and I thought it was interesting because you know obviously the the Westminster Confession is going to be the um, the the uh, the standard for uh, those who would call themselves Presbyterian, yeah. um, London Baptist. Spoiler alert is for people who would uh, align themselves with a, a Baptist um, systematic. Right. Um, but on the chapter on baptism, which is obviously going to be one of the biggest differences there, the Westminster Confession says um, baptism is but once to be administered to any one person. The London Baptist Confession doesn't. Doesn't say that. Correct. So it, it's it just says okay, this person needs to make get baptized on a profession of faith, but it doesn't limit how many times a person can get baptized. Hmm. And so I was like, okay, that that's that's a pretty stark difference, where you you see it a lot in um, a, a baptistic um, frame of mind is that um, oh well, if I if I get baptized. Um, as a kid, and I, I walk away from the Lord. Well, I need to rededicate my life and get rebaptized. The London Baptist Confession doesn't doesn't address that. Doesn't uh, doesn't condemn or approve. But by not specifically saying um, once to any one individual, you've kind of left that open to 
well, whenever, however you want. Well, I, I would take that and look at Scripture and say, well, we don't really have any references of people getting baptized multiple times, and I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that it should be a one-time thing, whether you think it should be a uh, an infant or whether you think it should be uh, an adult who's just coming to the faith. Um, that's the that's the mark of the covenant. If we're looking back at the old covenant, people weren't getting circumcised two and three times when they decided to rededicate their lives. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but those are those are differences that we're going to have yeah. um, w- within those confessions. What's our basic? You need to get baptized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we're not disagreeing on the fact that every person who is a Christian needs to be baptized, but the number and the date are the kind of the dividing points there. Yeah. And a lot of people say like, see, well, here's a good example of how these things cause division. You're just causing division. Well, actually, no, 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 no. We're working towards unity. Uh, at one point, there will be no more Baptists left. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to, to quote Paul, he says, we're working towards the unity of mind. That's He says in Ephesians, the pastors and elders and apostles were building a church uh, to be unified in faith and in mind and in practice. These confessions are meant to pr- uh, promote unity. They're, me- they're meant to uh, keep people together. Now, some of Machen's warrior children, some Presby's, uh, some Baptists, you know, they can get pretty crazy and fight over stupid stuff, sure. But the point of these is for unity. When when Calvin writes the Genevan Catechism, he's kind of calling out, here's what I believe. If you believe with me, come join me, and we can promote this truth together, and hopefully it can spread worldwide. That's the that's the purpose. The purpose isn't, let's build a tiny little two-by-four shack and get three people in here and isolate ourselves from the world. The goal is, uh, let's, let's compare this London Baptist, let's compare this Westminster. If we find them in error, uh, let's keep the best from both. Let's merge the two. Let's get rid of this. Let's let's work towards one. And uh, we do have one, basically, one, the Apostles' Creed. And um, I don't know how I would tie this back to religion, being legalistic, but yeah, well, and get I think, yourself a confession. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it, it, that, does, that does help because we do look at just um, establishing is the Westminster Confession on uh, correct on everything? There's no way it is because it was written by men. Um, what could be? It's not infallible, I, I, but it could be inerrant. It could be, yes. Um, except for they say that the Pope is the Antichrist. So it says that right in the Westminster. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. The the PCA <laughs> corrected it. So one of the one of the few things that the uh, I think the OPC did too. The the PCA got. Gets right. Oh wait, I think there um, were one church back then. Okay, sorry. But I, <laughs> um, no, but I think it, it. I hope this. I hope this conversation is helpful because I don't think we're dogging on uh, the church overall. Because we do recognize um, that there are people who have different um, methods. I guess would say, for for lack of a better word. Um, for practicing, and I think as long as we're we're seeing those um, those basic things, if we just link it back and say, okay, we all agree upon the the Apostles' Creed, can we can we say that? 
Some people will even freak out because the Apostles' Creed says that I believe in the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but that basic fundamental, sometimes there does come a time where we have to um, work backwards and go, okay, where, where did we split off in, in these different directions? Let's, let's get back there. Let's, let's find the fork in the road and figure out what caused that split off and go back there. So, you know, sometimes we might be able to look, I think it's funny that whether you're non-denominational Presbyterian Baptist, everybody loves the first question of the larger catechism or the shorter catechism, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Um, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Enjoy him forever? forever. Mm -hmm. Um, basically everybody in Christianity will hear that. If you ask anybody who's been in Christianity for any amount of time around Christian circles, What's the chief end of man? They have an answer for that question. Side note, I just read this little story, and it was of the, I think it was World War One, and there was a young soldier, a young man, and he was standing in the midst of a battle in a trench, and he was just extremely calm. He just, you know, hmm. more than anybody else, you could notice it. And a captain walks by him, looks at him, jabs his finger into his chest and says, Young man, what is the uh, what's the what? what's the chief end of man? Right. What's the what's the chief end of man? And he like promptly answered to to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And he's like, I knew you were a catechism man. I could see it in your <laughs> demeanor. And so that's that. That's just a cool little story. But yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, it's it's good. Um, because that's just where we're that's where we're at. Is that to be able to come back? Um, if we strip strip ourselves down to the bare bones and say, okay, where's the where was the divide that happened? Now let's let's work back from there. Sometimes uh, it does mean going clear back to an Apostles' Creed and saying, okay, well, we agree on this. Now let's work forward through church history. The beautiful thing about being 2,000 years into church history is that a lot of these questions have already been discussed and answered, and so working it, working it back together... Um, it's not that hard to piece to piece together the puzzle of like, okay, where where should we stand? Where is like where's the church historically stood uh, on these issues? Um, it, it helps to to frame that in. Uh, so, if we're looking at religion as an agreed upon thing, is it a relationship? Yes, there is personal piety. There is personal leading of the Holy Spirit, that we have to be um, open to God's leading, open to God uh, giving us specific direction in our life. Um, but when we say it's not a religion, it it cheapens a lot of what it means to be a Christian, um, because a Christian isn't just a um, latte and a, a notebook and a Bible. At 6 a.m. Although, that sounds good. It does sound good. Um, <laughs> it's kind of early in the morning here, so. Uh, Did you forget what you were saying? My bad. No, I had something I was going to say earlier, and I just can't remember what it was. But uh, I think that's well. That's a good enough place to stop. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, the last thing I'll, I'll leave with is, a, is kind of an analogy of a relationship in... In everyday life, what's the what's the relationship that mirrors the church's relationship with Christ? It's a wife with her husband. Husbands, you must love uh, your wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, 
submit, be subject to your husbands and everything, not just the little decisions and everything, just as the church is to Christ. Now, if somebody asked my wife, um, so do you like have to not cheat on Jeremiah or, and she was like, well, you know, I have a relationship with him. I'm not, I don't have to not cheat on him. Uh, it's just, no, she's married to me. We're in covenant together. She's obligated not to because of the relationship. The same thing with God, because you're in relationship with God, you are obligated to do certain things. And that's what people don't like to say is, and it's because, I don't know, pride. And there are blessings that come with doing things God's way. Right. And there are curses that come from not doing them God's way. Ooh. And so just like in a, in a marriage covenant, can she go off and cheat on you? Sure, but there's a covenant there that brings curses upon that unfaithful spouse. Uh, Holly, if you're listening to this, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> but um, but there, there's blessings and curses associated with it. Is there a blessing for her not to cheat, for that wife to not cheat on her husband? Absolutely. It's a faithful, thriving marriage um, with kids and grandkids. Um, is there curses associated with unfaithfulness? Yes. Lack of trust. Um, the possibility of infection and all these other, you know, go off into all these other terrible, nasty things that um, could happen. Just look at the life of David. Led to murder, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at just life, there are, there are blessings and curses for um, staying on the reservation. There are blessings for staying on the reservation, curses for getting off the reservation. Yeah. Um, and so don't view religion, law, um, as a club to beat you with, mm-hmm. but as a fence to keep you safe. Yeah. Um, and, and if you love Christ, you want to be like Christ. What did Christ do? He kept the law perfectly. And that's why Paul says we established the law through faith because we, we believe in Jesus and we live by the spirit who conforms us to the image of Christ. What did, what did Christ do? He kept the law. If we're being constantly conformed to him, what are we becoming? Holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. We are learning to be uh, keepers of the law. So with that, I will leave the comments open for neonomian accusations. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Well, thanks again for joining us today on another episode of Born to Reign. We're going to catch you next time. We'll have a Born to Read next week. And then the following week, I think we... I think we should uh, talk a little bit about the Sabbath because I feel like that's a that's an important keep that topic. Sabbath. So keep that uh, holy day. Is there is there a Sabbath for the new covenant people of God? Is there, or are we free to do whatever we want? Is are all days the same? We'll is the Sabbath that. on Saturday? We'll leave that for next time. Take care. <laughs>